some of her first anxiety in year six started around health anxiety. When we got the leak, there was a line in one of the messages that jumped out at us. Matt Hancock wrote he wanted to frighten the pants off the public. She was terrified that there was going to be another pandemic and this time it's going to kill everyone and what will happen then. The idea of scaring people was something the government denied. And yet people were still scared by the messaging which bombarded them through the pandemic. One of these people is Amber. She's 10 years old. They've been reading a book that mentioned the plague. And that's her mother, Liz, you're hearing. She had real panic attacks about it, real imaging that the plague was going to come back and it was going to spread and there were going to be more and more pandemics. She was worried about dying and about people dying and she had, the, you know, real proper panic attacks that I had to kind of do slow breathing with her about it. Is it ever justified to frighten the population? And how has that played out in people's lives? I remember reading about the plague when I was a kid and it obviously it didn't impact me in that way because I suppose I'd never had a, a realistic version of it happening in my lifetime. This is the Lockdown Files podcast. Episode 4, Project Fear. By August 2020, the country was almost free from lockdown. Do you remember we were all seeing our friends and doing Eat Out to Help Out? 50% off, £10 per head for everyone. We were hoping that the virus and the countless restrictions which came with it were behind us. But as we entered autumn... We are just getting the latest information now on uh, the tiering system. Covid cases started to rise again. In the last few moments, the uh, government has put up a postcode checker to find out what tier you're in. While people had largely accepted the first lockdown, criticism of the government started to emerge, especially by MPs. Sir Desmond Swain. Conservative MP speaking in Parliament at the end of September. Deputy Speaker, less than a year ago, I celebrated what I thought was the election of a sceptical and liberal Conservative administration. And now I'm left wondering if the Prime Minister hasn't been abducted by Dr Strangelove and reprogrammed by the sage over to the dark side. By mid-December, the second lockdown had recently ended, but the government still had a problem. How to make sure people continued to follow the rules. And soon enough, they found a solution. At the time, the country is really looking forward to spending Christmas together with loved ones. That's Rob Mendick. He's the chief reporter at The Telegraph. You know, it's something the government's kind of built us up to expect. He also worked on the lockdown files investigation. Rob explains that Matt Hancock has just found out about a new variant. Which is the Alpha or Kent variant. It seems to be fairly virulent. And to quote Hancock, we frighten the pants off everyone with the new strain. And then later says in the same conversations, when do we deploy the new variant? I guess the government would say, well, we were worried about the numbers, we were worried about the cases, but it's this use of the phrase, we frighten the pants off everyone with the new strain. Now, it's in a WhatsApp message. You'd never see that in a government communicate. The idea you deploy this new variant as a ruse, as a strategy to calm everyone down at Christmas when they know we're going to be devastated by that being cancelled. Frightening the pants off the public. We've asked ministers about this particular turn of phrase. One of them was Nadim Zahawi, the former vaccine minister. Do you think that kind of thing was a mistake? 
yes um, is the honest answer. I don't think... If it sounds like your headphones are broken, don't worry. That's the sound of a politician choosing their words very carefully. I decided to zoom in a little bit more. I didn't know about it at the time, so it's not fair for me sort of to comment as to what was the, you know, the context of what he was, I mean, is he saying it in jest? Is he, you know, what, how how that came across? I think it's a question you have to ask him. Um, Love to. <laughs> but, but um, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it certainly would not be a strategy that, that would be a winning strategy as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Jacob Rees-Mogg was more definitive. Well, I thought it was not how government ought to be carried on. What I thought was um, most improper about this was that it was an attempt to frighten everybody from the Prime Minister down. Frighten everybody from the Prime Minister down. We'll come back to that in a moment. This raises some pretty crucial questions. Is fear the most efficient tool to educate people on public health risks? Does fear keep us safe? To understand how the government might have tried to harness our emotions during the pandemic, there's one man we needed to speak to. I'm David Halpern. I was Anselm, the head of the uh, Behavioural Insights team. It's often nicknamed the Nudge Unit. He rarely gives interviews about his role, but when my colleague Janet sat down with him, he was keen to explain that... Fear-based campaigns are generally not where you want to start unless you think people are really, really miscalibrated. Halpin says there is a precedent for using fear to recalibrate people who you think have underestimated the risk in extreme circumstances. If you think about the various adverts over the years, one of the ones that cut through for most people's minds, one was the smoking with a kind of fat and cholesterol dripping out the end of the cigarette. Can you remember that one? Mm -hmm. Other ones similarly on, uh, on, on seatbelt wearing. Like most victims, Julie knew her killer. Where the kid goes forward and then the head hits the mother. It was her son. He wasn't wearing his seatbelt. They are pretty damn hard hitting. He traces this back to the most famous cut-through advert. You can go back to and one of the famous examples in this whole domain is on HIV, right? It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. Where the cut-through posters, which are thought generally to have saved a lot of lives on HIV, were pretty tough. So far it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading. So protect yourself and read this leaflet when it arrives. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. I remember those adverts as a child. They were terrifying. Very edgy at the time, but they cut through in a way that other things didn't. But not everyone thinks that extreme scenarios can justify fear. Professor Robert Dingwall, the sociologist from episode two, felt that during the AIDS crisis... You've only essentially got the terrestrial media, television channels and the cinemas, and you've got these, these sort of strong visuals about these sort of tombstones, doom-laden skies, about you know, what AIDS is, is going to do to us all. And what I didn't know is that the chief medical officer... That's the doctor who had Chris Whitty's job in the 1980s, declined an offer to go further. Professor Dingwall tells us... You know, the ad agency who'd put all this together you know, went back to the CMO and said, well, you know, we can produce some even scarier ones for you if you like. And the CMO at the time said, certainly not. You know, this is not what public health is about. We're not in the business of scaring people. The business of scaring people. That's an interesting phrase. When we think of the government's fear messaging during the pandemic, 
there's one advert that everyone remembers. You probably saw those posters. A campaign that looked them in the eyes, look her in the eyes, you know, and, and tell them you never, you never bent the rules. My colleague Janet asked David Halpin about it. And this had real COVID-19 patients from NHS wards, patients who were clearly getting medical treatment, wearing oxygen masks. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we all saw them. They aren't posters that we did. Um, I can understand why they were developed. They're on the borderline with respect to if they're, they're more fear-based. Halpin's job is to figure out what drives us as human beings. To do this, he says you need to understand one basic truth about human nature. We always tell ourselves stories which make ourselves feel better about ourselves. So we take credit for things that go well in the world. And when it goes wrong, it's someone else's fault. So the, the point about infection and uh, virus, right, is it's moving through. It's not just literally that you infect it. It's you infect someone who infects someone who infects someone, right? And that you're not really aware of it. It's not emotionally cutting through. By January 2021, he explained that scientists were able to divide the population into different segments. From Halpern's analysis, these look-into-their-eyes posters could be designed to cut through to what he calls super-spreaders. The segment is the people who are out and about. They are literally because of their jobs and their work and their activity or whatever, which is making them in contact with a lot of people, like salespeople, etc. or whatever. But also that feel pretty invincible and aren't being particularly safe. So they are your super-spreaders, right? Behaviourally, that's what they look like. And so they are disproportionately a concern. So I can perfectly understand that... You know, given the bluntness of a certain campaigns, those posters were trying to bring it home for that segment that you may feel invincible, but actually what you're doing is having consequence. But one of the problems was a poster in the street can't target only one part of the population. Everyone sees it. Bearing in mind, of course, there'll be lots of people for whom this would seem complete overkill. Halpin may have profiled this group but these weren't his posters, and the decisions were made by ministers. I asked one of them, Kit Malthouse. He was responsible for policing, about the impact of both the government's frightening messaging and their doom-laden press conferences. Some MPs have been critical of the government for kind of fostering what they've described as a project fear, mm. where um, the public become so terrified they don't want to leave the house because the threat of the virus is overblown. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I think I think a lot of that is is fed by by hindsight, if I'm honest with you. I mean, at the time, if you remember, there were very, very strident voices in the media and elsewhere calling for much greater uh, lockdowns, for much greater sanction uh, for people that the, the, in the face of the unknown, we had to assume the worst and be much more draconian. Um, and so striking a balance uh, that was sensible, and as I say, that overriding objective of, of protecting the NHS seemed to me a sensible thing to, to do. Now, obviously, history will judge. Mask wearing became quite a divisive issue during the pandemic, a real fault line. They come up in the messages. In January 2021, Simon Case, the country's most senior civil servant, sends a message to Matt Hancock that says... More mask wearing might be the only thing to consider. He says it's effectively free and has a very visible impact. And then he makes a suggestion, wear masks in all settings outside of home and in more workplaces. For some, they were a sensible precaution to reduce transmission. For others, 
being mask-free came to represent freedom from the state telling us what to do. David Halpern fell into the first camp, and he explained how social pressure played a role in encouraging compliance with the rules, how behaviour can spread through a population like a virus. In general, behaviour is contagious, right? Good and bad, it's contagious. If your friends get fat, you're more likely to get fat. Because mask wearing was visible, it was even more contagious than other kinds of behaviour. I remember seeing someone nearly coming physically to blows on a train because everybody else was wearing a mask and this person wasn't. You know, you might not be comfortable with that, but it is social pressure in action. The Behaviour Insights team, the unit normally known as the Nudge Unit, tries to harness social pressure for good. And they had a great guinea pig to test their theory on, Boris Johnson. That did not sit well with Jacob Rees-Mogg. One of the sinister things that came out, actually not from the WhatsApps, but had come out a bit earlier, was that nudge theory had been used on the Prime Minister, that they had decided to show him a presentation with slides of lots of world leaders wearing masks, because Boris didn't like wearing a mask, and this would nudge him into doing it. It is absolutely outrageous that officials should use behavioural science on a democratically mandated leader. Coronavirus can be found in tiny droplets coming out of your nose and mouth. The Nudge Unit designed some of the government's key COVID campaigns, including hands, face, space. We were trying to find what's sometimes called mnemonics. In everyday speak, you call them earworms. There's a very short set of words or sounds, and then they stick in your mind. The message stuck, and for Halpin's team, that was important because it helped develop new habits, or, to use his words, to re-cue them, like learning a new script. And one of the things about behaviour is you often want to re-cue it. So you know what you're supposed to do. That's, as it were, the script. And what people sometimes talk about is habit loops. So you're trying to create a new habit in this case, and then what you also then ideally need is you need a trigger for it, and traditionally also a reward. So the reward in this case is hopefully you actually feel safe because you've done these actions and you actually get the benefit of feeling like I'm doing something safe. And indeed, over time, you'll notice if you didn't do that, you're like, oh my God, I haven't got a mask and you sort of feel a bit naked or whatever, right? But what happens when these new behaviours, the ones which have been re-cued, take such a strong hold on you that you can't let go of them? What impact does that have on your life? We travelled north to meet with Liz. Thank you very much for having us in your kitchen. That's okay. yeah, just ignore the mess behind me. My colleague Catherine Rushton interviewed Liz. I'll let her take it from here. So Liz is a mum of two in her 40s. You heard her in the intro. We're with her to talk about her daughter, Amber. Amber is 10 years old and she is a girl with many interests. So she loves um, Harry Potter, drawing, fossils, painting and creating things. And like she loves making stuff out of clay. Oh, God, yes, she loves Pokemon, yes. So there used to be a point where every person she met, she would ask them what their favourite Pokemon was, what their favourite dinosaur was, and what their favourite animal was. And not having a favourite was not an option. <laughs> she, she couldn't understand. So if, if we were meeting someone, I'd have to pre-warn them and say, just Google a Pokemon and say that's your favourite Pokemon, yeah. <laughs> Amber also happens to be autistic. For her, that was... With with a lack of, because of their autism, I think without the lack of what we might consider small talk, that's her version of small talk. That's her version of finding out who you are as a person, you know, instead of asking you about the weather or where you went on holiday, straight to the nub of it, what's your Pokemon, right? That's a 
that to her is how she's kind of fitting you into her world, I suppose, or just opening conversation. When the pandemic kicked in in 2020, she was in primary school in year three. Like the rest of us, she had to adapt to all those new rules. But for an autistic child like Amber, that change was especially hard. Rules are really important to Amber. Again, like the small talk thing, she's not able to... And I'm not saying we did we didn't break any rules, but we did follow the rules. But she's not to di- able to differentiate between when you might, as an you know, perfectly legitimately not break a rule, but kind of bend a rule slightly. To her, rules are rules, and the rules constantly changing, and the anxiety levels about what she wasn't allowed to do, what she was allowed to do, was really hard. And she didn't hug my dad for 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 ages because she was convinced she was going to kill him. Sometimes Amber would point out how the rules didn't really make sense. And Liz had to admit she had a point. So we met my mum and dad outside a National Trust place. And then we went for a, a Sunday lunch, which we were allowed to do. And even Amber was like, so why can we have dinner here with them? But they can't come to our house. And I was like, yeah. I mean, I haven't got an answer for you for that. As the rules kept on changing, the pandemic took its toll on Amber's mental health. She actually got really sore skin on her hands because she was washing her hands so much and using so much antibacterial gel. Amber's got an older brother who's 13. Both my two get really funny about any anyone touching things, like sharing water bottles and stuff. You know, like, like I mean, within family, like if I want to take a swig of their water bottle and they're like, no. They're not wanting to get close to people, worrying about people when they... If they do get ill, just with anything, like with a cold or anything like that, you know. Amber's anxious behaviour continued, even after the pandemic. In fact, it got worse. You've heard Liz talk about some of this at the start of the episode. After a year of doing her best to readapt, Amber started having full-blown panic attacks about future pandemics. I know Amber isn't the only one because I've talked to other parents, you know, whose children have become agoraphobic, who don't want to go out anywhere, who don't want to meet people, who don't want to touch things. Demand for mental health support has exploded since the pandemic. In fact, the number of referrals to the NHS's Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services has nearly doubled. There are nearly one and a half million children seeking treatment now. I can't help but think that all the signs everywhere, you know, keep away and two metres and, you know, queuing for supermarkets. And, you know, now it sort of, it almost seems like a, like it's so weird, but it must have had an impact. And obviously I have the radio on, so they will be listening. You know, she does listen to the news and stuff. I don't try and shield them in that sense from it. Throughout our interview, Liz wanted to make one thing clear. She was generally in favour of lockdown. Clearly, there were things that needed to be done, but I think, I don't think it was ever properly explained, you know, to children in a way. Like I said, I think there's an idea that you just go, this is bad, stay at home because it'll kill people. But if you're 10 (laughs) and you see the world in very black and white terms, that's actually quite terrifying. A pandemic is always going to be worrying, but for Liz, A huge part of the government's job is to communicate the risks in a way that respects people's intelligence. It's just, it's like it's a joke. It's like we're stupid and that children are stupid. And don't treat me and my children like we're complete idiots. 
part of the government's messaging that Amber probably would have overheard during the pandemic were the daily press conferences. At the end of October 2020, when a second lockdown was beginning to loom over us, Patrick Valance, the chief scientific officer, put up a graph that shows there could be up to 4,000 deaths a day during winter. It was a startling and scary number. There's the potential for this to be twice as bad or more in terms of the first wave compared to the first wave. I remember feeling a sense of dread that lockdown was back. But not everyone agrees with those numbers. There's a message that dates back from the 1st of November 2020. It's from Boris Johnson himself. In a group chat with top advisers, Sir Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance, Dominic Cummings and some other political aides, Boris Johnson writes that he's on a call with others. So I can see an exchange. It's on the 1st of November 2020. Boris Johnson's talking in a group chat and he says he's on a call with two scientists. One of them is Carl Hennigan. And he says the scientists are telling him that the COVID death data is already very wrong. And then he says that an MP's told him that the number of deaths have been exaggerated. The death modelling you've been shown is already very wrong. That's in bold in the message. That's pretty striking. Was the science behind some of the most frightening predictions inaccurate? I don't know if you recognise the reference to Carl Hennigan in that message. You heard from him in the last episode about care homes. He was the urgent care GP who gave advice to the government from time to time. Professor Carl Hennigan is his full title, and he's an epidemiologist at Oxford. I remember seeing this chat and thinking that the whole thing was a bit strange. The wrong numbers, Boris Johnson being on a Zoom call with Carl Hennigan. So I went to Oxford to ask him about it. What happened is uh, I was contacted on the Friday night. Uh, could I actually attend a meeting for Saturday in 10 Downing Street? Well, the key for me was at the time I was actually working in urgent care that morning. And so I'm like, blimey, how do I get to this? So I, it was okay because they said, we'll Zoom you in. And the meeting starts at one. And I'm like, I finish at one o'clock. Therefore, I was like, I can join. It was like, and it seemed like, this seemed at the time, it, it was almost desperate for me to join. Professor Hennigan found himself on a Zoom call with some of the country's top advisors. And there I am in 10 Downing Street, into a meeting where they've got lots of their data analysts, all those young people who were doing that data analyst, which were the people I think who'd come with Dominic Cummings at that time. But Hennigan hadn't realised that even Boris Johnson was there. The purpose of these meetings was to give a chance to people with independent expertise to come and review the government's policies. And what they wanted to see is were they robust to those criticisms. And if you think about it, it's a bit like what we do in science peer review. So Carl Hennigan and another scientist were looking at graphs used at the government's press conference to predict COVID deaths. One of the lines showed deaths could reach 4,000 a day. Now, the key was we were talking about going into these lockdowns, weren't we, and restrictions again. And one of the key was the modelling. And, and at that meeting, I'd sat there and said, look, it's clear to me the modelling you are producing is incorrect and wrong. Not least it's out of date already. And what happens is they seem to produce a model. And by the time it got to policy, it was about a three-week gap. And then they're presented in a way that reinforces a position to say, we are locking down because we're going to end up with 4,000 deaths a day. 
As well as being an epidemiologist, Carl Hennigan is a director of evidence-based medicine at Oxford, so he's very into questioning assumptions or details. He said that the problem was only the worst-case scenarios were represented and the data was already out of date. But despite the political will to seek other opinions, Carl Hennigan says he didn't feel like the advisers on that call were really listening. Oh, you just want to let it rip. Well, that's a position where you go, well, we're having a debate here. We're trying to get understanding to understand something that's highly uncertain. And yes, there's a problem, but there are different ways of looking at the solution. So how did MPs react to the models which were presented at the press conference? Did they take them at face value? There was some pushback. Patrick Valance appeared in front of a select committee to discuss the data. Was it sensible or fair to put forward the graph with 4,000 uh, deaths a day, with or without the caveats? Pictures tell a much more powerful story uh, than the numbers do. That would have frightened a lot of people uh, around the country. Wasn't, wouldn't it have been better both to give the source data on that and explain in great detail, not just that it was modelling, but the, the figures uh, that had gone into it were six weeks old? The scientist is surprisingly open with his response. Well, I think I positioned that, and, and if that didn't come across, then I regret that, but I positioned that as a scenario from a couple of weeks ago based on an assumption to try and get a new reasonable worst-case scenario, and that those figures, therefore, were not as reliable as the six-week figure, which I spent time talking about. So those figures were ones done by um, major academic groups based on those assumptions. Sir Patrick is essentially saying that 4,000 deaths was a worst-case scenario, which had been produced a few weeks before. In his evidence, he agrees that it's harder to predict what's going to happen in the future, but says that the long-term graph came with caveats. The MP continues asking difficult questions. I don't think people see, see that. Certainly if you look in the, both the serious broadsheet press and the more popular tabloid press, people have been horrified at the way that was presented, thought it was a biased way uh, of presenting it, and not at all clear. You must realise that if you put a graph up saying 4,000 deaths a day, that is going to be the message that the vast majority of people take home. Do you regret that at all? Sir Patrick Valance replies that the, quote, aim of the presentation was to try to get as much information as we could to the public, end quote. Then the MP follows up with more, saying... You don't think that you just frighten people who do not have your scientific background and understanding of models and not... Well, um, I, I hope not. I mean, I, I think... I, I hope not, and that's certainly not the aim. Matt Hancock turned down our invite to come on the podcast to discuss fear tactics. Instead, a spokesperson said... The stolen materials published by The Telegraph have been taken completely out of context and many of the stories written from them are wildly inaccurate. All Mr Hancock's messages had already gone to the COVID inquiry unredacted, which is the right place to learn lessons of the pandemic. Last week in the COVID inquiry, Matt Hancock doubled down on his lockdown strategy. 
it is central to what we must learn as a country that we've got to be ready to hit a pandemic hard, that we've got to be able to take action, lockdown action if necessary, that is wider, earlier, more uh, stringent than feels comfortable at the time. And if a pandemic were to happen again, David Halpin says that we wouldn't be starting from scratch. So that is likely to stick. It is also for another reason, which is that once you've practiced something, you know, you kind of know how to do it. There's a reason why you do fire alerts. There's a reason why in 9 11, some people, you know, with the famous flaws that survive better because they practice their, their drills. So in principle, you can switch it back on. You've got the beginning, particularly of what's called a habit loop, as an if then, if this is happening, you should do that. My prediction, and I could be wrong, but on the basis of all that stuff is that if it happened again, people would in fact know much more clearly what to do. Remember all the other things which are less contentious, like we know how to work at home now. We figured out a lot of that more than we did before. or you know, So we've practiced the drill and we could redo it. The idea that Britain has been primed to accept future lockdowns will probably be more controversial than Halpin realises. And it's likely to unsettle those who feel the long shadow cast by stay-at-home orders has not been fully appreciated. Let's go back to Liz and my colleague, Catherine. So remember how Amber has become incredibly anxious, including about things like the plague? Liz has to figure out how to help her through it. We just had conversations about, well, you know that now that the plague sort of still exists. I had to be careful how I said it. You know, technically there are versions of it. You know, the plague was awful when it happened, but part of that was because we didn't know how it was spread. They didn't know what caused it and they didn't have any treatment for it. But now we have those treatments. And the same with COVID, I sort of tried to say, we've all had the vaccines and say, you know, that's how we treat it. We have the vaccines and now we have better treatments. Liz has found that the best way to help her daughter manage her fears is through really honest conversations. Rather than saying, oh, well, it's not a problem. Because I think for her, she's like, well, it is a problem because we had a worldwide pandemic and you can't tell me that pandemics aren't a thing. Every study always shows that the best way to deal with anything with young people and children is to explain it to them in an age-appropriate way. Liz's children are far more worried about germs than she ever was. Whereas I grew up, and I'm still a bit, you know, like five-second rule, you drop it on the floor, you pick it up, you know... She wouldn't do that now. Neither of them would do that now. Both her and my son, I think, have lost, almost lost that ability with germs to be able to make their own risk assessment because they've just been told germs are bad. Germs kill people. The pandemic may be over, but the effects that it's having on Amber's life are arguably getting worse. And everyone was like, right, we'll get back to normal and everything will be fine. And I think... Anyone who's ever dealt with any kind of mental health issue or mental illness will tell you that that doesn't make it go away. Generally, what it does is it digs underneath and then later on it kind of, it pops up. Kit Malthouse, the former minister, reflected on the long-term effects of the government's COVID policies. And I don't think necessarily that everybody appreciated what the downstream impacts of that were going to be. Um, for the future. Um, and definitely, I think that's one of the lessons that, that needs to be learned. I mean, hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll never get there again. Uh, but if we do, I think the downstream impacts of, of you know, successive lockdowns um, need to be fully appreciated. 
Halpin says we need to take these downstream effects seriously. You're absolutely right. You should look at what are those sort of knock-on consequences. And that's not a trivial matter. Back to Kit Malthouse. Looking back, some people have said that children were failed during the pandemic, that their needs were forgotten. What do you think about that? I do think that kids had a had a tough time, very tough time. Um, the upside is they're very resilient. I mean, kids, as, as you will know, are, are like bouncy balls. They do bounce around. But I do think that the, we, we will see the impact in them psychologically for some time to come. For Liz, the impact is very real. I think it's really easy to overuse or over apply resilience when what we mean is kids are really good at masking and they're really good at reading the room and saying, everyone's telling me that it's all okay now and just to get on with it. So I think that changed my view on resilience a bit because I think sometimes people would look at Amber and go, God, she's so good, she's so resilient, she's managed that situation expertly. But later on down the road, it, it comes with a big meltdown, it comes with a massive, you know, it has an impact on her. And I think that potentially that's what we're looking at with these children. I'm Claire Newell, and this is the Lockdown Files podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like the series, please leave a five-star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts. Please consider taking out a Telegraph subscription. We couldn't have made this show without our subscribers. Listeners to this podcast can get exclusive sign-up deals at telegraph.co.uk forward slash lockdown files podcast. And if you've got any information to share, please email us on lockdownfiles at telegraph.co.uk. This episode of the Lockdown Files podcast was written by me, Adelaide Pogemont-Ponte and Jack Boswell. Adelaide Pogemont-Ponte is also the series producer with Janet Easton working as co-producer. The investigations team behind it are Catherine Rushton, Sophie Barnes and Janet Easton. The other reporters who worked on the lockdown files are Robert Mendick, Hayley Dixon, Tony Diver and Jack Leather. Sound design and mixing by Jack Boswell. The executive producer is Louisa Wells. 